1: everybody I'm Joey Rennerman from Offscript Health. Welcome to the tangential conversation companion to Offscript Health's Before We Die podcast. We fondly named this bonus episode Lab Before Slab and these are the sometimes random often fascinating and always a little bit quirky conversations that happen around our production table. We couldn't quite fit them into our regular episodes, but we had a feeling that there are listeners out there who would enjoy them. So here are the Before We Die creators, Sandra Miller, John McMahon, and Craig Allman to geek out about the latest happenings in the medtech arena.
2: Well, thank you, Joey. I want to uh, give credit to the fact that I hijacked this idea from Craig. Uh, An article from medtechdive.com, which reported from Boston Consulting Group, that the U.S. is the number one place for medical devices to start treating patients. And that's really unique. People may not know. 10 years ago, if a patient or a friend or a family member reached out to me, they would say, you know, I have an aortic valve. My father or grandfather has an aortic valve. Where should they go to get treated? So 10 years ago, the answer went the following. Are you willing to go to Europe because they have the best devices available? And people would normally say, no. You know, you say, well, you want to go to the Cleveland Clinic or Stanford? They go, no, I want the best and I want to be able to go to bed. uh, In my own bed, I want to be close, right? So you, you have to work with that. But there's a real fundamental reason why. Now, there's been this whole shift back in the U.S. that U.S. companies are, are treating patients first here in the U.S. And that's today's topic.
1: Wow, that's very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so what do we think about that?
2: <laughs> it's not that the laws have changed in as much as really how they're enacted. The Congress didn't come up with something and say, we need these U.S. companies to actually make products available for U.S. patients. It was actually the FDA implementing the programs that they have. And it really started out because of that example. The transcatheter to do your aortic valve to replace it from a catheter was developed, started by a company, Edwards, in Irvine, California. And all the trials were really done and advanced overseas. Then a follow-on company came along. And in 2007, the first um, devices were approved in Europe. So this is a US company advancing a project and getting it approved in Europe first. And that product wasn't available in the US till 2012. In fact, that one device itself really was the impetus for the FDA to say, we've got to do something different. And when we talked about heroes and villains and stories in healthcare, the FDA lead, uh, Jeff Sheeran, actually is the one that put it into place. He took and embedded FDA staff into three different companies and said, you're going to follow them with weekly calls and understand how hard it is to approve a device in the U.S. so that we can innovate. And with that input, this shift of making it easier in the U.S. and it crossed political administrations. They were all supportive of it. Now you had the FDA getting easier. At the same time, Europe decided that they were sort of getting experimented on by U.S. companies, and they swung the other way and made it made it harder. And I think Sandy, you've probably got uh, you know a number of people that have looked for you for healthcare as well. You know, did did this issue show up, uh, and and how do you feel about it now?
3: Yeah. So. So I guess the question for the audience might be wondering, like, okay, why should we care? (laughs) Like, why why is this important? Going back and unwrapping the history of this is important because what happened, and and it's somewhere in the 2005 to 2007 sort of time frame. The FDA, you know, it was predictable in its more predictable in its decision making when medical device companies would submit applications for approval. So we were sort of leading on that front. And and a lot of those things uh, were happening here. What happened is that there was a change of leadership in the FDA's group that approves medical devices, which is the Center for Devices and Radiological Health. There was a change of leadership. As that new leader came on, they made some, you know, speeches internally, to inform, you know, their mandate, their approach, right, for, for how they planned to shape and guide um, CDRH under their leadership. And then what the medical device industry started to experience was a change in how decisions were being made. And all of a sudden, the FDA was no longer as predictable, and that had this massive impact on um, the medical device uh, industry, particularly at the startup level, because it took a lot more money, ultimately, to meet this new, these new sort of levels and thresholds that under the new leadership became in place. So what this report is uh, sharing is that this is now, you know, a 180 is happening now, and this is coming back to the U.S.
1: As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies.
0: Yeah, uh, two points. One is that uh, not only has the FDA changed their methodology to uh, be more supportive of innovation and to act more quickly, and of course, the more supportive the FDA is, the quicker you can get to a clinical trial, the quicker, the quicker you can get an approval, the quicker you can get to market, the less money you'll need to raise to actually do all that. So that's hugely advantageous to innovation and innovation companies when your your you know your path is much shorter. We tend to criticize the government and everyone else a lot. Uh, here, the FDA is doing something really good and really important that's benefiting American companies and benefiting American patients. So that's great. There's another side to it too, which is that uh, a couple of years ago the EU came out with a new medical device regulation and the EU is famously bureaucratic you you know you've got a whole bunch of countries different languages different interests how could it not be and when that came out everyone kind of panicked uh, because it was so complex
2: well you know that Craig it was it actually they announced that it was coming out and nobody knew what it was for two years so what people it's not even that they knew it was complex they, they only said they were going to change it. And so companies didn't even know what to anticipate. They just knew something was coming and they didn't know what it was. It's, it's a really tough environment to actually operate or make a plan when you, all you know is the, the, somebody is moving the goalposts, but they haven't told you where they're putting it.
0: Yeah. And in business, the worst thing you could have is unpredictability. If you know what the deal is, if you know how long it'll take, if you know what steps you have to make, you can plan for it. If it's a black hole and it's kind of random, then you're talking not about business, but about gaming. You know, you're, you're making bets and you have no idea if you're going to win or not. In an ideal world, which, you know, clearly we don't live in, but in an ideal world, you'd have the same standards and the same approval process in all the world, if not at least in all the industrialized countries, you know, the U.S., Europe, Japan, Korea, and so on. Because it's incredibly expensive for companies that are innovating, that are always tied to funds, uh, to have to jump through not only the U.S. hoops, which, okay, have been improved, but are still significant, very significant, but also all the European and Japanese hoops.
2: So we're doing trials in Lithuania, there's, um, uh, for example, and you go, why are you going to Lithuania? Because that healthcare system can't afford the cost of new devices, so they say, we'll we'll let you come in and do a really expedited regulatory review, and their surgeons and their cardiologists, they're pulling U.S. companies. You can go to Vilnius, Lithuania, and stay in the hotel, and you can see five people you know from Silicon Valley if you stay there a month. And then the surgeons or clinicians, they do the risk-benefit reward. They they review the product and go, okay, we want this to come to our patients. And so that's, that's happening real time. In countries like uh, New Zealand, there's no regulation at all. The doctor is licensed by the government to provide healthcare and so you write a letter to the doctor and and you send him all the test data and the doctor reviews it and then when you get on the plane you have a letter from him saying I want this new device for my patient let them through customs there was a group in New Zealand that said well we want to take it away from the doctors and we're going to make our own FDA and the collective healthcare said, you will never see products. Your market is so small, we won't do a separate filing for you because you don't even know what it is. So how this ends up reaching patients, it's a really positive on the FDA side. I'm going to give you one other anecdote to give you an idea what the change is from a startup standpoint from how my career started to now. So I got in the mail a letter from the FDA when we were at Kerberos, the first company that, that uh, Tom Goff, Brian Courtney, and I started. And I'm not kidding. I went and got like those asbestos gloves. You know, we had a witness. We were taking it out of the mailbox. We made sure attorneys were in the room before we opened it. You know, we had board members on, there's a letter from the FDA. Three years ago, as a change of this policy, I'm driving in the car for a V2K for a thrombectomy project, and the phone rings in the car, and it's like, hey, I'm a reviewer at the FDA, and I'm looking at your report, and I'm on like chart 13, and can you explain it to me? And I remember exactly where I was. I pulled over. (laughs) I was right near my brother's house in Virginia. I'm thinking, is this really just somebody from the FDA just <laughs> calling me so we could talk about this document that he's, like, trying to read the chart? And and we talked for about 10 minutes.
1: I yeah, it you going about it come 10? up as potential spam, like, you know, when it comes up on your phone, it didn't say potential spam on your phone.
2: <laughs> or that I needed my extended car warranty or anything, yeah. <laughs> um, and I just sat there and I hung up, and I'm thinking, that's a really a big difference. And now I sit on a a FDA academic and commercial working group where we meet and talk about how to make clinical trials more efficient. It's a really fundamental change and it's benefiting patients every day at this point.
1: So there you have it. Join us next time because you never know where Lab Before Slab is going to go. And for more in-depth conversations with our MedTech innovators, join us for our regular episodes of Before We Die on this very same feed. Thanks for listening. Lab Before Slab is an off-script health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Lab Before Slab is mixed by Kyle Moore. Our Lab Before Slab panel of experts and creators of the show are Sandra Miller, John McMahon, and Craig Allman. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Share your healthcare stories, and we might just play them on the air in a future episode. For more information, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.